the women of the legendary underground feminist abortion service in 1970s Chicago. What I say always is that we were ordinary women who found ourselves in extraordinary circumstances and were able to accomplish something truly extraordinary. That's Laura Kaplan. We talk with her about her book, Jane. But first, another Chicago story about organizing for justice. We talk with former Chicago alderwoman and community activist Helen Schiller about her memoir, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice, in-depth conversation with writers of all genres, on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on the station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Our first guest today is someone I met in the movement of the late 1960s and early 70s when we were both student radicals at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, fighting against the Vietnam War and against racist policies on campus. After we graduated, I lost touch with Helen Schiller, but later learned she'd become an alderman on Chicago's city council. How Schiller continued her fights of social justice from Madison to the streets of Chicago's working-class uptown community and then as an elected official forms the fascinating story she tells in her new memoir, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win. Through her book, Schiller shows the way to building multiracial, working-class solidarity in the face of a brutal political machine and a racist system. Its lessons are powerfully relevant for social justice activists today. Helen Schiller, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you. Great to be here. This is a memoir, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win. This is a memoir of your roughly half-century involvement as a fighter for social justice, both as a grassroots activist and a Chicago alderman. So first, the title. Tell us where that comes from and why you chose it. The title comes directly from Fred Hampton, who was the deputy chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party for a very short time, from the time that he was from 1968 when the chapter began until his murder by Chicago police in December on December 4th, 1969. Um, I had the opportunity to see Fred, not exactly meet him, but see him at Madison when I was a student there, when we were both students there, and and uh, he caught my attention. Uh, one of his pretty consistent phrases was, dare, dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't dare to struggle, you don't deserve to win. It was a challenge that I took to heart. And uh, ultimately, by the time that, over the course of the next several years, um, I began organizing after leaving the, uh, the, the campus, after leaving Madison, and my orientation was always feeling very strongly the responsibility um, as someone who was white to organize white people to join the Black-led struggle for liberation and ultimately ended up in Chicago in the early 19, 1972, specifically to work with a group called the Intercommunal Survival Committee. Yeah. And as you said, we did know each other back in the day. We were both students and activists at UW-Madison. I remember that meeting with Fred Hampton. We were both in SDS. We were in the anti-war movement. And it was really wonderful to be reminded of the movement there. 
which was about much more than just being anti-war. It was yes. about racial injustice, imperialism in general, and eventually, as you uh, have uh, you know started talking about building a multiracial working class movement, I, I went to Milwaukee and I worked in yeah. a factory. I felt that I learned far more from my coworkers about sure. what it meant to live as a, a working class person in America. It's really where I kind of got my class consciousness, not the class consciousness I was necessarily born with because I, I came from a middle class Jewish family, but really understood that that is at the root of the issues of power and empowerment. And this is very much what you talk about in this wonderful memoir, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Helen Schiller. So you went to Chicago, and you went to a particular neighborhood, Uptown Chicago. Describe the neighborhood and tell us why you went there. I, I specifically came to Chicago to join a group that was just being formed called the Intercommunal Survival Committee. And we were a cadre, a small cadre of white people working under the direction of the Black Panther Party. And our job, self-defined, but also obviously in relationship to the to the party, was to organize white people to join the Black-led struggle for social justice and to understand why that was in their interest and to engage them in all sorts of different activities along the way, and especially survival programs. Uptown Chicago in 1972, in the, in the summer of 1972, it was a very diverse community. It was one of only two in the city, I believe, at the time that had integrated census tracts. You know, Chicago has historically been pretty segregated. And, it, and the other one was Hyde Park, which was around the university, was more middle class. This was a community where a significant number of people were poor and working people. And it had the largest concentration of poor white people probably in the country at the time, uh, largest concentration of uh, Native Americans in an urban area at the time, or one of them, the oldest Black community in Chicago outside of the Black Belt, uh, which is where most Black people were restricted to live for many years and many decades in Chicago, and was also the port of entry from people from multiple, from virtually every continent and every community in the country, every, almost every state, but so, especially the southern states, but also almost every community in Chicago. Uh, so it was very diverse. We Our housing stock had been uh, included several of the HUD high-rises that were built in the late 60s and or very early 70s that were either low-income and or moderately priced apartments or a combination of the two. And in each, we had 10,000 of those built in Chicago. They were mostly privately owned. HUD made it possible to get very, very low interest rates at a time when we had double-digit inflation, um, encouraging developers to build these. And there were 10,000 built in Chicago. 4,000 of them were built in the broader uptown community. And people came from all over to live there. So each building had their own characteristics. So it was uh, really diverse. And the rest of the housing stock was really where most people lived, especially poor people, um, were in terrible, terrible shape. Uh, it had been divested in for years, was under attack because the city in the late 60s began to suggest that various different public institutions be built on the basis, they said that it would really contribute and help people living in the community, but to a an institution, there were three of them, they were being planned to be built exactly where the people that they were supposedly intended to serve 
actually lived. So therefore, they were going to be displaced and not there when those institutions were done. And the biggest of those was a city college, which is now known, has been named Truman College, and at the time ultimately displaced about 3,200 people, initially 1,600. So that became um, really a piece of the DNA of, of Uptown. And it was really, it was an obvious place for us to organize. Um, the other piece of it was that historically in the mid 60s, SDS members had gone to Uptown, formed a group called Join Jobs or Income Now, and had begun organizing, I think it was in 65. And out of that organizing effort or in conjunction with it, there was like a mass organization in the community uh, called Voice of the People that later became a housing group. And a neighborhood gang called Goodfellows became organized and intentionally turned to politics, and they were called the Young Patriots, and uh, were influenced in large measure by the Black Panther Party and uh, the Young Lords Organization. So this was the so-called Rainbow Coalition, the Young Patriots, who are white, the Young Lords, Puerto Rican, and the Black Panther Party. You know, what, what impressed me was the incredible range of service organizations that you set up, but not service, they weren't just about service. They were about empowerment and about organizing. And I was thinking to myself, they had some similarity with mutual aid work today, but it was different because it was focused on struggle as well as service. For example, There's a remarkable scene that you paint at a Black Panther Party rally in Uptown in 1973 with an audience of 3,000 mostly poor white people to stop police brutality. Talk about how your organizing transcended the racial divisions that this society has so often used to divide people who really have common interests. So we were actually fortunate to be able to build on some of the previous work that had been done by the Young Patriots in Uptown. They were gone by the, by 1972, but they were young people who were engaged in, they started a, in several programs uh, that were similar or, or the models came from the Black Panther Party. So they had a free health clinic. They had other programs as well. And they had several interactions with the police that led to a lot of organizing around uh, different issues related to the police, including the attempt to get one of the police officers removed from uptown, if not from the police force, because of his brutal treatment towards them in the community. So they were following what we all ultimately ended up doing, which was the 10-point platform and program of the Black Panther Party, which was very clear. It was a demand for what was just and right, and then out of that, programs grew. So housing is a, you know, I'm not going to read the whole program, but so there were housing, education, healthcare, jails and prisons, uh, the self, the prim, uh, criminal justice system, all of these things were identified and targeted in this program as being very unjust. And out of them, a whole series of programs had been developed, which really were pegged as survival pending revolution. The notion that we had to be able to engage the community in their own survival while we organized people to be able to make the changes that we needed to have, and that the programs had to reflect the world that we wanted to live in and uh, based on the needs that people had. And if we look today, consequently, the uh, I think largely because of what happened in Chicago, sickle cell anemia now is known and accepted as a real disease and tested for, uh, which had never happened before. 
So the Black Panther Party had free clinics, they had free breakfast programs, they had a series of, of, of activities that prove things could be available. And now we have lunches in the schools and breakfast in the schools and publicly funded clinics and things like that. So clearly, by showing what was possible, we actually put the government in a position kind of like what happened in the 30s, where they had to respond and backtrack on many of the retrenchment of, of whatever safety nets have existed previously for us. And it's a, obviously a struggle that's ongoing and needs to be continued because it's important that people survive. If they're not able to survive, if they're not able to take the pressure off of what they need to do individually through collective action, and whether that is organizing, whether that is demonstrating, or whether that is just plain surviving, um, it is that collective action that moves us forward and creates the potential for the change that we want to see. If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Helen Schiller, a former alderman on the Chicago City Council and grassroots activist about her memoir, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win. So you did a lot of door-to-door organizing. You were really embedded in the community. One of the things you did, and it was around trying to get an ordinance for community control of policing, You failed in that, but you did a voter registration campaign in order to bring that about, and you said that did have an impact. In fact, you say that that work, your work on voter registration, changed the way elections happened in Chicago. Chicago was under the thumb of an incredible machine. Talk about the machine. Talk about how your organizing changed it. Well, the I, I, it's really interesting. Um, the notion, the whole notion of the machine, and um, and how different people have responded to it. Um, Chicago, Richard J. Daly, the original, the old man Daly, um, developed what has become commonly called the Chicago um, Democratic Machine, or just the machine. A lot of people still say there's a machine around. It's nothing like what what that was. Uh, when I came to Chicago, literally. The first time I went canvassing, uh, the conditions people were living were horrific. And I'm pretty sure I was canvassing with a petition about dumping the butcher, who how we described Edward Hanrahan, who was the state's attorney that was responsible for sending the police to kill Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. And he was up for re-election in 1972. He had done that in 69, but now he was up for re-election. And so we were campaigning against him. Uh, we were preparing for the campaign against him, and we were trying to educate people to that. And so we had a petition, which was to dump the butcher, and um, that, ex- you know, paragraph explanation. And we talked to people, and we also had Black Panther papers with us. And we were going door to door. And I was struck by the horrific conditions people were living in. So we, I also started talking to them about doing something about that. And they were really interested. That's what really got people's attention. When I came back the following week, because I had kind of a route, nobody would talk to me at first. And it became really obvious that what had happened was, or I came to understand that what had happened was, is that the the precinct captain, Chicago's organized by wards, and each ward has precincts, and the precincts define where you vote. And every precinct had a precinct captain that reported to the head of the ward, who is a ward committeeman um, that was elected in elections every four years, uh, one for the Democratic Party and one for the Republican Party. The Republican Party was invisible. So really, it was a Democratic Party precinct captain that you dealt with. And he then or she, mostly he, then dealt with the ward committeeman. 
and they would make all that all sorts of 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 ways in which to impact your life. If you were on welfare, they can impact your welfare. If you were um, a renter, which most people were, uh, they probably knew your landlord and could mess with you. Uh, many people actually had uh, what's called protective payees, where they would actually their manager of the building that they lived in would control their money and would not allow them to have any spending money if they didn't do what they were supposed to do. And almost all of that, or maybe it was a job that they had gotten that was threatened if they didn't go along with a with the precinct captain. So most of that really had to do with elections, but there was also a clear relationship between the machine and the Red Squad, which later on was forced to be disbanded by the courts and, and to disclose all their, they did a lot of spying on people. It was a, a squad in the police department, and all of that now is public and available for people to see. Uh, but they, all those things were connected, so that apparently the precinct captain had gone behind me and told everyone I talked to, "Don't talk to her again." So it really, we had to sort of get beyond that, and we did that through the programs, and we did that by our consistency, and we did that just by our natural interaction with people that we did through the various activities we were engaged in. The election judges would allow machine workers to accompany voters into the voting booth to watch and make sure that they voted as they were told. And it wasn't just that, as you pointed out, the Red Squad. You know, something that struck me as I read Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win was the incredible degree of repression and violence, state violence, that, you know, we all were under, but especially the the more you were actually working with working class issues, the more it it happened, although the anti-war movement also was uh, subjected to it. We have a lot of voter suppression going on today, but I, I think people are not aware that Democracy has been in peril for a lot longer than it is right now. Yeah. Talk a little bit about then and now. Do you see this as just more of the same or is there something different? So so the other part of the machine for us and what I learned really quickly or came to conclude and it became kind of our mantra was that, in fact, the structure of the democratic machine was a very effective structure. Um, they were very effective in their interaction. The problem we had was the content they put into it, how they utilized it. You know, having an operation where you have precinct captains and award committeemen and you have people constantly in touch with the community and interacting with them is a very positive dynamic. But when you use that to be manipulative and controlling and you impact people's lives so negatively, that's what's bad. So we decided we take the structure and we would um, change the content. And that's what really, ultimately, through that process, we learned how, and through also our relationship building, we learned how the machine would steal votes. And so we were able then to protect it because that was also part of their content. Um, I say all that, and I think it's important because over the years, there's been a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I want to both say one thing about Chicago and then one thing about the country in regards to that in your question. First, in Chicago, part of the machine was what everyone called was the patronage system. And the essence of that was that people got a job not in order to do the job or because they were qualified for that particular job, but because of their relationship to the political structure. So that you had a lot of stuff that people didn't even come to work, let alone know what they were doing or being able to do the job. Um, One of the things that Harold Washington said and did was, no, we don't think that in essence, it's bad to help people get jobs. It's been the primary way 
in Chicago for the last, you know, how many decades that uh, has allowed Black people to access uh, the, these jobs in government. And they're really, they're steady and they're important jobs. So we don't want to say, get rid of all of that. What we want is we want people who are qualified to do the job they're hired to do and who will put work a full day's work for a full day's pay. And it is up to them whether or not they're going to do political work. The tendency in Chicago has been to throw the baby out with the bathwater and to say, let's just get rid of the, the political uh, patronage. And I think that that's that really misses the point. So that's the Chicago part. The national part, I think, is really important for us. It seems to me, if I look around for the last 20 or so years, that uh, given that we have a two-party system predominantly and that um, it, it, that as the pendulum has been moving to the right, uh, we've had to often act defensively, um, especially from the left, in terms of ultimate general elections, et cetera. And we tend to be very focused, more focused on the national than we do on the local. So on the one hand, we're forgetting something that's really important, which is all politics really starts and is local. Um, and secondly, we've given it up. We've given up the local uh, creating a seat on a local level at the level that's necessary in order to really be able to shift. And so what we see is we I think we see a, a right wing taking advantage of this structure putting their own content into it and leaving us in the dust. And the consequence is what we have today. I mean, it's just unimaginable to me would have been to think even we, even at the moment in time, 40 years ago or 50 years ago, when we were talking about really thinking the revolution was around the corner, that we'd have a Supreme Court that is like the one we have today. We thought that Supreme Court wasn't left enough, you know, that was too far to the right. Um, and we have a situation where the people we said were the crazies, although we did feel that they had a huge impact or were representative of the level of racism in the day. Uh, but we never, I don't think I ever did anyway, expect that they were really the really the most outspoken far right uh, rhetoric was going to become the rhetoric of the land acceptable in, in one of the most, uh, you know, national important institutions that was kind of supposedly there to hold everything accountable, uh, meaning the Supreme Court. So I think they've been very successful in areas that we gave up. So I think it's important. Politics is local. Um, you have to start there. You have to really build a sea from the ground up, a sea to swim in from a progressive perspective that looks forward, that is opening, that is constantly demanding and creating more and more support and the backbone as well as the support and demand for the forward movement looking to the future to ensure that there's more inclusion, not less, that we become more democratic, not less, that our institutions become more just, not less. Whereas we're faced with the opposite now, very successfully having kind of seized that sea and pushed an entire party very far to the left in a movement back to the original constitution, which was you're a citizen, if you're white, you're male, and you have property. And that's where I think we are today. Yeah. And you meant pushing it to the right. Yes. Did I say the left? I definitely meant pushing it to the right. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so, yeah. So I, I'm very frustrated by the world today. Um, I'm concerned about it, uh, but I don't think that all hope is lost. And I think that it's clear what we have to do, which is kind of how I, why I ended the book the way I did. So talk more about that in the context of, I mean, you started out with an outside game as an activist. You didn't trust electoral politics. Mm -hmm. Then 
You worked uh, with Harold Washington on getting him elected. You ran for office for the first time then. You didn't win, but you came back several years later when you did, became the alderman for the 46th Ward and remained that for like 24 years. Talk about what have you learned about playing the inside and the outside game? What, what can each one do for each other? Well, I think that when there's a symbiotic relationship, it is possible to get a lot more done. So as an activist and, and someone who actually always has hated politics, but as an activist, my confrontation with the powers that be was to demand that they act. We defined the problem and said, now it's your problem. You better solve it. Um, as an elected official, what I realized was a couple of things. One is I was always on the outs in the institution of the city council, even even actually when Harold Washington was mayor. I had a lot more support in those seven months before he died because I was elected as he was um, in his second term. Uh, but still, I was pushing the envelope on the issues that were of concern to me. I initially had a great deal of grassroots support, and I was, through conversation with Harold, almost invariably was able to have his support. But my goal was to prove that you could do, one of my goals was to prove that you could do development without displacement. And there was a, an entire campaign that was developed that first summer as alderman that was specifically geared to demonize that notion and by demonizing me. And um, I found that I had, you know, a lot of resistance from more aldermen than I thought I would have. So for me, it was always, I'm going back to the community and we're going to do what we have to do and we're going to figure it out. But it was clear to me also that there were limits in what I could do. People expected me to be able to solve any problem or pass any ordinance. And I couldn't necessarily do that. And I realized that often the mayor couldn't necessarily do that. And by extension, I realized that in many circumstances, elected officials, uh, more often than not, people assume they can do more than they want. And equally as often, they think they can do more than they want, or at least they act like they can, and they give very false hopes and promises to people. And that's why one of the reasons we're so cynical about politics. I didn't want to do any of that. I spent a lot of time describing to people what was going on. And what became really clear was that it was helpful. I needed a seat of swimming. I really needed people making demands. I needed them to make demands of me. And I needed to be able to go toe-to-toe with folks, sometimes because I didn't think they understood what the dynamic was, and sometimes because that was helpful for me to understand their perspective, but also to be reminded about what I had to do. And that I did have a responsibility to, I might not have an answer today, but I had to keep on it and figure it out. And I wasn't going to do that alone. I think that there is, in a progressive sense, a symbiotic relationship between activists, and I'm assuming progressive in this instance, and the people that they fight hard to elect who they consider their own. There's a, you know, there's a back and forth. Uh, there's a kind of a dialectic there, but it doesn't, it's not successful unless each does their job building a sea for the elected official to swim in and the elected official taking that further into whatever context they function in government, but also in going back and forth to make sure that the best solution is created, understanding the demands and needs that people are expressing. Helen Schiller talking about her book, Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win. Next up, Jane. Stay tuned after the break. I am and I am willing for to be hope. 
would seem so strange it dishonors those who go before us so lift me to the light of change There is a hurting In my family And there is sorrow In my town There is a panic All across the nation And there is That was Holly Near singing, I Am Willing. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Nearly 50 years ago, women in America gained the constitutional right to abortion. In June of this year, they lost that right. What was it like before Roe v. Wade? I remember it well. It was a terrifying time to be a woman, as it is now, again. The women's liberation movement of that earlier time organized abortion services all across the nation. The most legendary and unique was the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation in Chicago, a.k.a. Jane. The service's advertisement said, Pregnant? Don't want to be? Call Jane. One of Jane's members was Laura Kaplan, Her 1995 book about the group, Jane, has just been reissued with a new introduction by the author. It comes at a time when you can view HBO's terrific new documentary, The Janes. But the book adds much more detail to that story. Here's our conversation with Laura Kaplan. Laura Kaplan, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thanks so much for having me. The story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. Uh, Jane was started in 1969, four years before Roe v. Wade legalized abortion. You joined in 1971. How did you get involved? So I had been a student at the University of Chicago when I graduated in 69, moved back to New York and then moved back to Chicago in the fall of 71. And my very dear friend, Alice, who was still a student at the University of Chicago, discovered she was pregnant. And she looked around for an abortion, and she saw in an underground newspaper an ad that said something like, pregnant don't want to be called Jane with the number. So she called. And after her abortion, she came over to my apartment and she was so thrilled and excited by the experience that, as I often say, she was almost bouncing off the walls. And I thought, hmm, this is pretty interesting. And she was excited not because only because she was no longer pregnant, but because the experience had been so unique 
and so fulfilling in so many ways for her. Educationally, she felt like she was getting educated. She felt that she was really the center of the experience. She was just thrilled. So she took me to meet her counselor, who lived a few blocks from me. And her counselor told us that they were starting a new training session. And so I said, oh, I think I'll do this. And so I went. And that's how I got into Jane. And that's such a great story because it really centers on how different, how radically different Jane was as an abortion service than, of course, any other that existed at that time. Um, But first about the book. The story of Jane was first released in, I believe it was 1995. Is that correct? That's the pub date. It actually, you know, I really think it came out in January of 96. And now it's out in a new edition. You have a preface to the new edition in which you say that the history of Jane can serve as a vehicle to explore what community organizing is. What do you mean by that? So I was, for most of my professional life, I was a community organizer. And I saw this story as a way to talk about organizing on many different levels with a really exciting twist. An exciting twist? With an exciting twist, because this is a story, and at the time I started working on the book, Jane was known, but not well-known. You know, we used to say in Chicago, in the days that we were working, that it was the best-known secret in the city of Chicago. And I think in the women's movement, it was sort of the best-known secret. So most people, I don't think, knew about what we did. And I really felt like I wanted to document as much as I could our history before we'd forgotten all about it. And even then, and that was, you know, 15 years after we folded, what I discovered is that a lot of us forgot a lot of things. (laughs) Um, And because we were an illegal organization, of course, we kept no records. So the only way to tell this story was through the memories and the voices of the people who were part of it. So that's what I attempted to do, to weave together hours and hours and hours and hours of interviews into a coherent tale. You also say that you wanted to write the story rather than somebody leave it to somebody else who was not part of Jane, because you were afraid that an outsider would paint the women of Jane as superheroes. You say that it's the opposite of the truth. Why? Well, I think what's really important, or one of the things, there's many things that are, I think, important about the story, but one of the things that is important is for readers, especially young readers, to sit down with a book and hear our memories and think to themselves, oh, this could be me. And when you paint people as heroes, courageous, you know, whatever 
those are all external terms. We certainly didn't see ourselves that way. What I say always is that we were ordinary women who found ourselves in extraordinary circumstances and were able to accomplish something truly extraordinary. And I wanted younger people especially to have that same sense that if they organized with others, they could do things they never dreamed they could do because we for sure never dreamed that we would do what we did. And it is uh, incredible what you did. It took a lot of courage. But I think what you're really saying is it's the courage of ordinary people working together that can accomplish extraordinary things. Yes. And because when you're in the midst of it, you don't see, you don't see yourself that way. You know, one of the women in the group said to me, you know, you put one foot in front of the other and you just keep walking and all of a sudden there you are in the middle of it, whatever it is. And I think that's that's really the truth of the power of individuals working together is you start with what you know. And in our case, it was nothing. I mean, there was no information out there. You know, now you go into a bookstore and there's shelves and shelves of books on women's health. Well, back in 1969, there was nothing. There were no books. There was no information out there. So we started really not knowing very much and not being able to do very much and really letting the needs of women and the needs of people guide us. And then you put one foot in front of the other and soon you know everything and you can do everything. Maybe not that soon, but you know, you don't look ahead. You look in front of you. And you look at what the needs are and you try to meet those needs. And it's ordinary people who are doing it now and we're doing it then. The official name of Jane was the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation. And so the connection to the women's liberation movement is something that you really go deeply into here situate Jane as part of that movement and talk about how the women's movement impacted the struggle for abortion. So I think what happened is that before the explosion of women's consciousness, you know, what most of us knew about abortion was that every once in a while a woman sought and found an illegal abortion, and she died from it. And we'd all seen the pictures of the crumpled bodies in the alleyways. But when women started speaking to each other about women's issues, and one of those issues definitely was abortion, what we discovered was that lots of women were looking for abortions, and lots of women found them. And they were still alive afterwards and talking about it. Maybe their experience was pretty brutal or cruel, but here they were alive talking about what had happened to them. So women's groups all over the country, not just in Chicago, decided that they would suss out the illegal networks in their home communities. They would prepare women for these experiences. They would try to find the best practitioners, of course. 
and they would raise money because illegal abortions were very, very expensive to help women pay for their abortions. That happened all over the country. And that's how Jane started. So you mentioned that our official name was the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation. Uh, We internally referred to ourselves as the service, short for Abortion Counseling Service. So I think this was fairly common. This was not what was unique about us. This is Writer's Voice, and we're talking with Laura Kaplan about the new edition of her book, Jane, the women of the legendary underground feminist abortion service. Of course, as we go on talking about this, we'll find out just how unique you did become. But before we get to that, the radical part of the women's movement differed in its approach, as did you. You were part of that, differed in your approach from the legal or more establishment approach that's embodied in Roe versus Wade. What were the differences? Well, we were coming from a place in which we wanted women to be full participants in our society, and we felt that women should have the right to self-determination on every level and that women should be regarded. And as you probably remember, in the heydays of the 60s, when the student movement and the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement were what we call, when we say the movement, it's sort of the confluence of those movements, were male-dominated and really didn't want to hear from women. You know, Heather Booth, who started the service, talks about how she was at some New Left meeting and she was talking and one of the guys looked at her and said, oh, shut up. And she went went up to other women who were there and said, let's get out of here. And, you know, she was part of the first women's liberation group, the West Side group in Chicago, whose genesis comes right out of those kinds of experiences. And I think many women had those kinds of experiences as they tried to do radical political work. Yes. Yes, we did. I mean, I remember some guy coming up to me after meeting and saying, well, you're pretty articulate for a woman. Yeah. I mean, who needs this? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What I found interesting, though, you you assign pseudonyms to all the women in the story, just kind of equally, even though we do know from your from the film about this and and, and history of Jane some of the real names in the story. But one woman you call Miriam in the book said of the idea of abortion reform that any issue can be reform or radical depending on how you do it. And I I found that a very useful idea. Uh, Say more about that. Okay. Well, one of my favorite stories, you know, New York legalized abortion in 1970. So earlier, much earlier than Roe. And when the legislature was debating it, some feminists from, I believe from the city, in any case, came up to Albany with their ideal piece of abortion legislation, and it was a blank sheet of paper because they believed that any involvement in the state to legislate on abortion would lead to more and more restrictions 
and we have seen their prescient view come true with a vengeance, because that's exactly, even before the Jobs decision, that's exactly what had been happening. So uh, that's, you know, kind of the difference. Do you want the state involved in the most intimate decision a woman can make for herself? Do you respect women? That's a real key part of this. And we, so we try to do our work in the most respectful way possible. And we included women in what we did. We never said you came to Jane. You came through Jane because it was a process. And we would say to women, we're not doing this to you, but with you. You're like partners in crime, (laughs) so to speak. And so everything we did was to underline that this particular woman, whoever she was, was making a decision about her life. So we underscored it as a decision. So she wasn't a hapless victim. You know, it wasn't that stuff happened to me. It was that I am making a statement about who I am and who I want to be in the world. And we did, as I mentioned before, an incredible amount of education, not only about abortion and the procedure and what would happen, but about birth control, about how her body worked. Like I said earlier in our interview, there was no material out there. The first Our Bodies Ourselves, which was called Women in Their Bodies, was newsprint copy that came out in, I believe, December of 1970. So after we had already established ourselves and we got, and it was 35 cents a copy and we got thousands and gave them out to women. Any woman who came to us, who called us to get an abortion, when she went to see her counselor, she got a copy for herself and a copy for her sister or friend or, you know, whatever. Our aim was to really elevate the position of women in society. What you talk about in the book is the concept of empowerment as a as a guiding principle. And then it came not only to empowering the women you were serving, but empowering yourselves. I mean, at a certain point, the collective or a few people in the collective decided that you would get trained to do the abortions themselves. I mean, the ultimate kind that's of empowerment. Not, that's not That's not totally accurate. First of all, we weren't a collective. And when I hear people refer to us as the Jane Collective, it's like nails on a chalkboard for me. Because Sorry about that. <laughs> that's okay. It's what everybody does. And it drives me nuts. That was never our name. Nobody ever referred to us as the Jane Collective. We never referred to ourselves that way. This was a misnomer that I believe was given to us by a woman sociologist who interviewed a bunch of us after we folded and wrote some sociological studies. And I think she's the one who gave us that name, but it wasn't our name. And we weren't a collective. We were far from it. Um, I describe our structure as a series of concentric circles. And the closer you got to the inner circle, the more you knew and the more power you had 
within the group. So here we were trying to equalize powerful women, but at the same time, as so often happens in life, we were far from having equal power within this group. We did not really decide to learn how to do abortions, and we were doing DNCs. So what happened was the early members of the group, and I was not one of them, determined pretty quickly on that um, they had to take more control of the process in order to give women more control, that the only way to give women more control was for them to get control of the process. So they looked for one of the practitioners they were referring to to find somebody they could work with. And one particular guy uh, who said he was a doctor was willing to do some negotiations with us. And eventually he was willing to let certain people in the group and some people who weren't even in the group, but they were friends with Jody, who was, I call Jenny in the book, who were personal friends of hers, uh, be there during the abortions. And all this time she was sort of berating him about the circumstances women found themselves. I mean, he was doing it for the money. He was very good, very competent and extremely good at getting people to relax and feel comfortable. But she was berating him to take less money and to do certain ones for free. And I think after a while, he realized this wasn't going to be much of a money-making deal for him and that he'd just as soon get out of it. And he was the one who really encouraged Jody, the woman I called Jenny, to start to learn from him. And she didn't want to at first. I mean, he said, here, you know, take this instrument, see what it feels like. And she was like, no, no, I don't want to do that. But he convinced her to do it. And once she, it's like going through, what did they say, the fourth wall or the third wall, whatever wall it is. Once you're on the other side of the looking glass, it's like landing in Oz. You know, what was black and white is suddenly in brilliant color. Um, and she realized that she could indeed learn to do this and other people in the group could learn to do this as well. Meanwhile, she had figured out that he was not, as he presented himself, a doctor. And there was a point at which, and I have to put it in the passive tense because nobody could remember exactly how this went down, but it was revealed to the larger group that our guy indeed was not a doctor and the room exploded. I mean, there were women who were crying, who said, we're just like all well, the back alley abortionists. We've got to close down. This is terrible. We've been lying to women and we had been, although unknowingly, but cooler heads prevailed. And in fact, one woman said, if he can do it and he's not a doctor, then we can do it too and we can charge a whole lot less. And that, I think, is the point that Jenny wanted the group to get to. I think she felt, and she she's dead now, and she never admitted this to me, but once she started learning for the group to make that leap, and that was a huge leap, they would first have to accept that our guy was not a doctor. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, there were women who left the group at that point. They didn't want anything to do with Jane. 
But the group that stayed was stronger and more cohesive. So she learned and he taught other women and she taught other women. And fairly soon, it was an entirely woman-led group. The abortions were done by us. They were done in our apartments and our friends' apartments. And we lowered the price dramatically to $100 of what you could afford. And we estimate that we probably took in maybe $40 or $50 per abortion. No one was ever turned away. And lots of women paid nothing. Or they paid $8 because they had $8. So that was the what made us so unique. I, to this day, do not know of any other group who evolved in the way that we evolved. So we set up at that point an underground abortion service, working three days a week, doing close to 100 abortions a week out of our own apartments. We counseled the women in advance. So we explained everything that would happen, including who they would see that day and what things would feel like and what they should watch out for afterwards. We supplied post-abortion medications and lots of education on birth control and on women's bodies. And we estimate that by the time we folded a few months after Roe was decided, that we had performed 11,000 or more safe, affordable, illegal abortions for women in and around the city of Chicago. It's absolutely remarkable. And, you know, if he had been a doctor, it's highly unlikely that he would have that he would have trained any of you. So in a way, that was uh, fortunate. Well, it's highly unlikely that he would have worked as closely with us as he did. And that was one of the things that Jody said at that meeting. I mean, who do you think would work this closely with us? What doctor would do this? Now, you yourself were not trained to do abortions. Is that, is that correct, if I remember? I, You know, it was an apprenticeship, and I was on my way when Roe was decided. Okay, so to me, it seems like, as you say, it's like the wall. It seems like an insurmountable thing to do. What was your experience in making the shift and going through that wall, just emotionally creating that shift in yourself? It was mind-blowing. The first time I gave someone a I am shot of ergotrate, I thought, oh, you know, I I could kill this person, (laughs) you know, from giving them a shot. Because what did I know about medical practice? Zip. You know, so our training was you started with the first step of the abortion, which was this, I am shot of ergotrate. And the second step was inserting a speculum. And the third step was swabbing out the vagina with betadine, an antiseptic, and la, 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 la. You know, so you learn the first step, then you learn the second step, then you learn the third step. And when you were comfortable With each of those steps, you moved on to the next step. And the next thing you know, you've got instruments in the uterus, you know, but only when you you were deemed competent by someone who was training you and when you felt comfortable moving on. Yeah, it's remarkable. And as you said, these were safe abortions. You had a stellar record. Um, You know, in the time that we have left... 
I'd like to move on to today because here we are again. We have lost the right, the legal right to legalize abortions and unless things really change, we're going to be dealing with this for a while. Yes, but I don't think we're going to be dealing with this for forever, quite frankly. You know, the movement is, you know, two steps forward, one step back. You know, I live in a state where unless Congress decides to make abortion illegal nationwide, the right here is secure. But what I wanted to ask is, talk about how the community organizing methods of Jane can apply in this new situation. This is a situation where abortions are not just done surgically. They're, most of them are, in fact, done medically. What are the things that you see in this landscape where you can see the impact of the Jane model and how we can apply it? First of all, you're absolutely right. We're in a much better place because of medical abortions. And people all over the country are figuring out ways to get the medications to the women who need them. I don't know the specifics of who's doing what. And if I did, I wouldn't be talking about it publicly. People are organizing on all kinds of fronts some quite vocally and some very quietly and surreptitiously, so to speak. And I think that Jane provides something we didn't have, which is a model that won't be replicated the way we did things, and that's a good thing, but a sense and a knowledge that this can be done. And it can be done by ordinary people organizing together and figuring out what they can do right here, right now, today, and then moving forward from that. And it is such an inspiring experience to read this book, The Story of Jane, the legendary underground feminist abortion service. There are so many lessons in it. It's just a terrific read. Thank you, Laura Kaplan. Thank you for having been part of Blazing the Trail for Women Today. Well, thank you for having me. You know, I've been talking about Jane for a long time, suddenly because of the terrible situation that we're in in this country, it's unfortunately become more and more relevant. Laura Kaplan was a member of Jane and founding member of the Emma Goldman Women's Health Center in Chicago. She's on the board of the National Women's Health Network. Go to writersvoice.net to see the trailer to the HBO documentary, The Janes. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. You can also sign up to get the show delivered straight to your inbox or subscribe to the podcast and the newsletter. And follow us on Twitter at writersvoice, all one word. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon. (laughs) 